It's the end of a busy day. You just saw 15 patients, but instead of heading home for dinner with your spouse or playing with your kids, you now begin your night job, charting. Charting is critical and necessary, but it steals your focus from your patients, eats away at your time with your family, and keeps you up at night. The burden of always having another chart to complete drains every clinician. Freed is an AI medical scribe that makes charting go away. Freed listens, prepares your notes, and writes patient instructions for you. Charting is done before your patient walks out of the room. But wait, it gets even better. Freed learns your style over time just like a human scribe would, except that it will never quit on you. Freed is loved by over 3,000 clinicians from every specialty. It is HIPAA compliant, takes 30 seconds to learn, and costs only $99 per month. You can try Freed for free right now by going to freed.ai. Listeners of Financial Residency can use the FR50 coupon code for $50 off the first month. In this episode, I'm talking with Donovan Sanchez. Donovan is a certified financial planner and the founder of Skyview Financial Planning, a firm providing financial planning for physicians who believe in independent advice for a fair price. Today, we're talking all about financial advisors' conflicts of interest and how they can cause you harm. Donovan and I both started our careers as financial advisors at Northwestern Mutual, which happens to be known for having more than their fair share of conflicts. We cover many of these major conflicts people should know about, but often don't, and how they can negatively affect the advice you receive, especially when you're unaware of them and when your advisor isn't doing anything to mitigate them. We discuss how the big financial product manufacturers have particularly cumbersome conflicts that its advisors are forced to deal with, and we talk about a new disclosure requirement for certified financial planners and how it's a good step, but not enough. We also get into how you can sort through all this confusion and find a quality advisor. So if you're working with a financial advisor or are considering hiring one in the future, you definitely need to understand this stuff. Today, we're going to peel back the curtain for you. Donovan, what's up, man? Thanks for hanging out with us today. Daniel, it's really good to be here. I appreciate that opportunity to chat. Awesome. So I want to talk about financial advisors today and some of the conflicts of interest that, that we face in our industry. Before we get into the details of that, I was curious if you could kind of break down for us, what are the different types of financial advisors as far as like compensation structures and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's a good question. The difficulty that a lot of your listeners are going to face is... The fact that the title financial advisor can pretty much apply to mostly anybody that's working in the financial services industry to some extent. And so when you're asking what are the types of financial advisors, I think that the best way to answer that question is to really look at a compensation model and to understand how you're paying for the services that you're receiving. And I think that you'd probably agree that you can really break down compensation to kind of three main categories. And the first category would be a commission relationship. In other words, when I say a commission relationship, what I really mean is that you are uh, compensating your financial advisor through commissions that they are earning based on the sale of an insurance product or an investment product. There's some sort of product transaction that's happening, and that's how your advisors are earning a living. So that's really the first kind of broad model. The second compensation structure would be one in which, actually, maybe it's helpful just to, to, to not talk about the hybrid model and just talk about the other extreme, which is a fee-only model. Under a fee-only model, there is absolutely no 
product sale, there is no commission because there aren't any product sales. And so the advice, the service that you're receiving from your financial advisor is the advice they're providing is what you are paying for. So you give your advisor a fee and there's a lot of different ways that you might do this. It could be an hourly fee. It could be a flat annual retainer. It could be tied to assets under management. But the point is, in some way, you are paying for the advice through a fee. Now, there's this middle ground too, which unfortunately is known as fee-based, which isn't super helpful. Yeah. This is what really a... <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's a good question. Without some experience in the industry, it would be really hard as a consumer to understand which I think is the point while we're having this conversation. And this is the majority of people, right? This kind of hybrid category. Yeah, it would be really interesting to look at the numbers. Could be. I suspect there's a whole lot of commissioned advisors. No, but I think you're probably right. I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the numbers, but I suspect that you're probably right. It probably is the middle ground commission only because under fee-based, you can earn commissions. Financial advisors earn commissions based off the sale of product, but they can also charge you fees. And so these could be like one-time financial planning fees, or they could be an asset under management fee or something like that. But the point is that the fee-based model is allowing for commissions as well as fees to be charged. And so I think you're probably right. Probably most advisors are in that in-between stage, but you know, I haven't seen the numbers to be sure, but I bet you're probably right about that. That's confusing. Super Even, confusing. And we're in the industry. I'm like, I can't imagine as a consumer trying to sort through that. I think that's part of the challenge of what we're talking about is I, so the gist of it is there's a lot of different ways advisors get paid. And right. so I think we're talking about the conflicts. And so if you were to look at kind of all the different categories of advisors, maybe let's start with the most conflicted arrangement. So the most yeah. conflicts of interest, what would you kind of describe as that looking like? Yeah. I mean, I'll put it this way. So, and maybe it's helpful for me to share from experience. Like your listeners should know that I started out in the industry with a national insurance company, Northwestern Mutual to be specific, that also does some financial planning work now. And as a new financial representative, which is the title that I came into the industry with, it didn't take long for me to become a quote financial advisor. But the vast majority of my compensation, certainly early on, 100% of my compensation was from commission. And so I was a, that commission advisor. A little bit later on in my time with Northwestern Mutual, I did earn some fees for service. But for all intents and purposes, it was almost entirely commissions. And the challenge with that is that I'm a father of four, happily married. And at the time, I think I had three kids. The challenge with a commission model is that as a financial advisor, if I am unable to sell something, then I am unable to provide for my family. And yeah, you get a lot of mouths to feed. Correct. And even if I was just a single guy, let's just say that I was a single guy fresh out of college or something, I still want to earn a living and make a way for myself. And so under a commission model, it can be very difficult to provide advice that is completely in your, the client's best interest. Because at the end of the day, somewhere at some time, I need to make a sale. There has to be something, there has to be some sort of transaction that's going to end up providing me with some money. And so as, on the other end of the table as the client, you got to be aware of that. And so I would view, in my opinion, that would be the arrangement that is most conflicted. But yeah, I don't... Then, when you're completely relying on commissions as an advisor. Especially. 
But, you know, the next arrangement that I think does reduce potentially some of the conflicts is that fee-based model. Potentially, I mean, this really just depends on uh, how much of that advisor's revenue is he earning from fees if he's under the fee-based model where he's earning fees and commissions. Because I think especially young financial advisors in that model, uh, there's a possibility that they're still earning a lot of commissions. Like that's kind of one of their primary sources of income. I suspect that over time, as they increase revenue from, let's say, investments under management, then you know their need to sell decreases because they've got these somewhat more passive income streams. But it doesn't remove it doesn't remove the conflict from the table, right, Daniel? It's still there. There's still a product. There's still a desire and an incentive, if you will to sell a product, in particular ones that will earn you high commissions. Which are typically the ones, and in, in some cases, they're the ones that are the wor- are worse for people. I, I th- yeah, I mean, I think the way that I think the, the way that I would look at it certainly is that if we talk specifically about insurance products that we, I think you and I regularly see young physicians with a large whole life insurance policy or a large permanent life insurance policy. I actually just started working with an individual who has a whole life insurance policy that he's paying $22,000 a year into. And he's a young guy, 35 years old. And from best interest, what is in the best interest for him as an individual, it's hard for me to come to the conclusion that it was in his best interest to purchase a whole life insurance policy. And so I think that's the real challenge that we're facing in our industry is that these financial incentives, which are powerful, that we respond to as people, I have, in my experience, they will guide the type of relationship that you're going to have with your financial advisor, which is why it's so important for you to understand how your financial advisor is getting paid. Yeah, I was. So I have a similar background. I started at Northwestern Mutual and worked there for quite a bit longer than Donovan. And I kind of got into more of the fee stuff. But my challenge early on was I didn't even know the conflicts. I didn't understand. When I was commission only, I didn't really get it at all. I was a 22 year old and had, I was just ignorant. So I kind of just was going through blindly and I thought I was doing good work and whatnot. And then, but the incentives are like you're describing are very impactful. And if you're a human, you're going to be affected by influences. So yeah. the commission only model, or I guess anything deriving or involving commission at the end of the day, um, I think the challenge or the, the problem is really that's a sales engagement, right? Yeah. So yeah. if we were to kind of sh- strip it out at its core, it's really like, you're working with a salesperson and an advisor. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Let me make a let me make a comment on what you were mentioning earlier about kind of being oblivious to how the system operated. I was a little bit older than you when I transitioned to financial services. I graduated from Brigham Young University with a teaching degree, and I taught high school for a few years. And I was like, hey, maybe I should check out some other options. I love teaching, by the way, and I have tremendous respect for teachers, in particular high school teachers. It's a tough gig, though, as I think many people recognize. And so I had virtually no experience. In fact, no experience at all in, in financial planning whatsoever. My experience consisted of listening to Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover 
and being like, sweet, this is great. And following the baby steps and eventually talking to our financial advisor, who was also a commission salesman and saying, hey, I think this would be fun. Can I do it too? And he was like, yeah, sure. Here's a few companies. And that's how I landed my job. You're, it's worth your, your listeners realizing that oftentimes when a financial advisor is paid on commission, it often means that a lot of their training is actually in sales. Which, the salesperson role. Yeah, exactly what you're saying about this sometimes dual sales slash advisor, these two hats that they somehow balance between or put on takeoff. My training consisted a whole lot of sales. And it was really frustrating to because I think most people, even if they are joining a company that's paying primarily commissions or only commissions, they may feel as I did that I was going to be a financial advisor. And so there'd be some training that would come into that. I happened to have a good manager at Northwestern Mutual who did emphasize teaching us how to be financial, do financial planning. But there was just the bulk of the focus overall and the rewards and and how you were recognized for achievements was based on product sales, new clients, instead of like a holistic plan. Yeah. And you got to, it's got to be, that's what it is. That's, it's a, so that's part of the issue is a product distribution company, a manufacturer of products yes, is employing people to s- distribute its products or sell its products. And so naturally they're going to put a bulk, the bulk of their efforts and if they're going to teach them anything, it's going to be how to sell them better. Wouldn't that be great if people, as they're researching companies that they were going to partner with, if they just did a quick search and looked into if the company, if the firm that is employing their advisor sells product, that's huge. If they just look into and see if there's any sort of proprietary product, people should be aware that there's a good chance that the advisor they work with is going to be commissioned to sell that. They're a means of distribution. And uh, as we're talking, that creates some challenges. But what consumers out there are aware of that as they're getting a phone call from someone saying that, hey, I worked with your buddy, Bill, and he said that I should reach out. And uh, how many people are going to think about that? I think probably very few, if any at all. That's the other thing might be helpful to point out. Okay. So Donovan and I think have a similar marketing approach now. Uh, I would think it's relatively, I guess, put out good information and education to help people like this podcast to help people understand how we do things and give them good content that they would need either way. And then people will come to us eventually seek out our services and that kind of thing. Completely opposite marketing approach in more of the commission world is it's very proactive and aggressive. So you are going to hear from the advisor first. Typically you're not reaching out to the advisors, reach out to you. It's typically like, I worked with your buddy so-and-so and he said, you're a good guy and, and I ought to talk to you and you might benefit from working with me. I could, <laughs> I got my old language. still. It's good down, language you got there, Daniel. So you're going to get solicited. So that, but that, when that is happening, that kind of is the first hint that it's probably a sales organization as opposed to an advice organization, right? Yeah. So, so Daniel and I had this like little smile that we exchanged as he was going through the language that he was using <laughs> because one of the things that was so apparent when I was working as a commissioned uh, financial advisor was that the focus was heavy on the language to use, this quote unquote, right language to use when working with people, whether it was to schedule a meeting 
or if it was to offer the particular product. I had way more language training, I think it's fair to say, than like financial planning training. And the key point about the language, I mean, that's it. You could argue that's a good way to market your business. But I think it became an issue from an advice quality standpoint when if you have language that's the same for every single person, that in itself is a problem because not everybody's the same. And, you know, that's a sign that you're giving conflicted advice. When you made a good point earlier also about just that you're probably, if you hear from the financial advisor first, not universally, there's plenty of fee-only advisors that are also building businesses and reaching out to people. But I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, a lot of the time, or maybe even a majority of the time, if a financial advisor reaches out to you, there's a reasonable chance that there's a product that they would like to sell that can earn them a commission. And and again, if we, it's pretty logical, right? If I only get paid if I sell something, then I have to have a lot of people coming through the door to sell to. And so I have to become very good, very adept at calling people, scheduling meetings, but also at requesting my clients or even people that I meet with to provide referrals to me. And so if you're listening to this and your financial advisor has kind of sat you down at the end of the meeting and said, hey, Jim, I really appreciate last time you introduced me to such and such person. Who else can you think of that maybe I should be reaching out to that might benefit from these services? That was always uncomfortable. Daniel, I don't know if there's a human being that doesn't feel uncomfortable asking for referrals. Yeah, but I'm sure on the other end for the client or the prospective client, it was just painful. But you know, if you're exploring advisors and that's one of the things that they're doing, I would actually say that's kind of a red flag as why do they why are they seeking to reach out to all of my friends and family right now? It could be because they have to have sales volume in order to accomplish their goals. Yeah, it's a that's definitely a another kind of red flag, I would say. And that I could see that happening as well. And somebody that's really marketing their business. But I really am trying to think of someone in our kind of fee-only world that does it that way. And I really can't think of anybody that asks for referrals and is not aggressive with reaching out to people. It's just, I think when you turn that kind of drive to get volume of new business off. So let's talk about volume a little bit. How many did you... So when I was leaving Northwestern, I had, uh, that was one of the challenges I was running into. I was probably up to like 400 or something clients. And I'm like, I can't possibly meet with all these people. And, and I still needed new business every year. And so, yeah, I don't know what your experience was like. With, well, with that. you were probably way more of a successful in terms of like number of clients and how many people you were able to bring on than I was. I don't think I was a particularly good. I was good there a while too. Yeah, I was there for about a year and a half. I don't remember exactly how many clients I had, but what I do remember, if my memory serves me correctly, my manager had like over a thousand clients. Understanding that like the someone becomes a client once you sell them something, and so they're a client of yours. So obviously, there's I, I don't think that my manager was at all trying to reach out to all of these people. I'm sure that he had determined who were the ones that he wanted to continue working with because they were the most profitable per se, right? If we look at it that way. This gets to a different question. The question of how many people can a financial advisor work with? And my opinion, 
I'd love to hear yours too. But my opinion is that you get to about a hundred clients and maybe 120 and that client is getting pretty stretched in terms of their capacity to serve those people really well. I mean, think about think about your own situation, how complicated your life is. Your the changing dynamics of your household, new kids and different opportunities, job changes. And imagine a financial advisor with 500 clients. How in the world is that advisor going to have the time to understand your details and be able to plan for you? And so yeah. I think about 100 is probably the number. But Yeah, I think, think that's a good number. I would say 50 to 150. And it's really depending on the complexity the of the clients. And but I think that's per head. So if you have yeah, per CFP or, or, or whatnot. But so if you're maybe if your advisor has a thousand people they're working with, maybe that's why you're not getting much service. And I think it is that'd be a great question I'd be asking is how many active clients do you have? And at what point do you cap out or whatever? And at that point, what do you do differently? So the industry has changed a little bit. We talked about the CFP disclosure a minute ago before before we got started on the podcast. And I'm curious if you wrote an article specifically about it. So if you could kind of break down what, what has happened that's changed recently regarding that. Yeah. So as a certified financial planner, a financial advisor needs to act as a fiduciary, meaning put the client's best interests at all times. And so it's not a matter of what you were alluding to previously about being able to jump from a financial advisor role into a sales role and back and forth. A CFP needs to always put their client's interest first. The article that I wrote appeared in in a blog called The Physician Philosopher. And I think it's titled something like The Code, Conflicts and Client Interests. I wrote it in response to an interesting article written by Tobias Salinger with Financial Planning so financialplanning.com. And going back to these large companies that are paying their advisors on commission, one of the duties that are required under the new CFP standards is that you, first of all, again, put your client's interests first, that fiduciary standard, but also that you disclose any material conflicts of interest. And so Tobias Salinger's article in financial planning, you can go, you can look up his article and maybe I'll just pull we can the name of it. it. Yeah. So the actual article itself is Northwestern Mutuals, excuse me, Northwestern's CFP disclosures put industries fraught questions in focus. His article is really interesting, but what's even more interesting in my opinion is that he actually links to a CFP disclosure template that Northwestern Mutual Financial Advisors were able to use or not use as in order to, I mean, they have to disclose somehow. So whether they use the template or they created something if on their own. If they're a CFP. If they're a CFP. If they're not a CFP. It's interesting. Yeah. It only This would only apply to those financial advisors that were CFP. It wouldn't apply to those who were not. That's concerning, CFP isn't standard it? standard is a little bit, I mean, I don't know what to think of that. I mean, maybe you should at minimum be working with a CFP and... I think it's a step in the right direction. I'm, so what do you get with a CFP? You get someone who has a minimum level of training. You get someone that has a minimum level of experience because there's a three years of experience requirement. And then you get someone that is supposed to be committing to an ethical standard. And so I think that's a great step in the right direction. 
but I don't think that it's, I don't think that it is going to remove bias and conflicts if there's a material conflict, which again, I mean, the interesting about that article is looking at Northwestern Mutual's, the disclosure document itself and reading through it, which I would invite your listeners to do, read through that. And because in it, Northwestern Mutual discloses their material, which good kudos to them, good for them for going out there and saying, hey, here's some of the ways that as an as your advisor, I would be conflicted. But in reading through the reading through the document, the client or prospective client, I think it would really give them make them pause and consider whether they want to work with a financial advisor that has to deal with those conflicts. Because there's so many there's so many financial advisors that that don't have to deal with those conflicts. So given the choice between working with a financial advisor who has some pretty significant material conflicts of interest coming from a requirement to sell proprietary products and working with a financial advisor who you are paying fees, you are paying them just for their advice. There's no transaction that has to happen for them to get paid. You remove that conflict. I think, at least speaking for myself, the choice is easy for me. I think for most people, it probably is too. Yeah, I read through the their disclosure requirement in it. I think it is a it's a honorable thing to reveal all their conflicts and they've kind of taken this step forward with that but uh, it does highlight really all the big conflicts and the list is very long. I mean, you got a ton of stuff on here. You got you know that NML, the Northwestern Mutual, their product requirements, they have the minimum standards that you must meet in order to continue to be employed. They have like the proprietary requirements where you kind of have to, there's a higher, you don't have to sell Northwestern products, but you in some cases are contractually obligated to put them first. There's all kinds of uh, money changing hands between the fund companies and the big corporation itself. They disclose all their their training and incentives designed to to recommend proprietary stuff. The products there, you can adjust products and ultimately adjust your compensation. One of the ones I saw people have trouble with the most was whole life insurance. Is the product itself? You can design it. I mean, you can adjust how much how it's structured, which directly dictates how much you get paid as an advisor, and so. I don't know about your experience, Donovan, but when I have looked at them um, as a third party, it's I don't think I've ever seen one that's structured to have the minimum commissions on them. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't reviewed. I mean, I don't know if I can speak to that as much as also bring up my concerns, though, about whole life insurance, because as I... Right, not long before I left the company, I was really starting to struggle with uh, this idea that there were a ton of people that should have whole life insurance, right? This is kind of part of your experience when you might, if you're at like a company that offers whole life insurance, is that there may be the sense because of the training and the way that people are talking about things that whole life insurance is something that everyone needs to have. And I was really getting to the point where like I was just not convinced. And so there were, there, there are successful advisors that will sell training. And so I purchased training from an advisor who was like a whole life insurance expert, really just hoping and praying that I was going to be able to see the math behind why people should have whole life insurance. And as you might imagine, what I really had purchased was 
more sales language. More language, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I do you mind if so I've got the that CFP board Northwestern Mutual Disclosure brochure up. Do you mind if I just read a couple quotes from it? It might be helpful just to so what you were bringing up earlier about the challenge of uh, yeah, quotas, basically. So this comes from the disclosure document. It's page three. Persuade to my, and this is quote, persuade to my Northwestern Mutual contract. My primary insurance product affiliation is with Northwestern Mutual. I primarily recommend sell and service Northwestern Mutual insurance products. And I am required to meet annual minimum insurance production requirements established by Northwestern Mutual from time to time. Um, let me jump to a, another one. What does that actually mean? Just kind of... Break it yeah, down. so to to break it down, nuts and bolts, the advisor here, and again, this is a template, so this isn't necessarily something that an advisor ha- would they can structure this however they want, so long as they're disclosing their conflicts. But they're saying, essentially, I'm an employee of Northwestern Mutual, and I will primarily be recommending those products because I have to hit I have to hit this minimum insurance requirement. I actually saw the unfortunate experience too, Daniel. There was an advisor in our office. And I don't know if this was a national thing. I don't think it was. I think it was more of a regional office. But he wasn't selling enough Northwestern Mutual Insurance. And so he was getting fined. He was getting fined. I can't remember how many years in a row he'd been fined because he hadn't sold enough. And you can lose your health insurance too. Well, I think just lose your contract in general, possibly. I mean, again, I don't know a whole lot about that, but I, I just, I can't imagine him being able, and he was a good guy. I just, it's hard for me to imagine any advisor who's fearful that he's going to get to the end of the year and owe the company money because he didn't sell enough of their stuff. Yeah. But that was, that was his situation. Yeah. The, that's the thing in my experience It's the people there are good people. The challenges is more of the organization structure and the, really just the conflict that you're dealing with. It's not so much bad people doing bad things. No, not at all. And I think that's I think that is a dangerous thing that sometimes gets out there on various blogs and things like that. Like the notion that these financial advisors are evil or bad. They, I mean, just I just I look in the mirror. Just yeah, it's, I know. It's, like it's you're a human, human behavior, too. and it's a human behavior because of an incentive. Right. And it would be like a physician working for a pharmaceutical company, probably. I mean, that- yeah. Yeah. So that's actually interesting you mentioned that because in the article that I wrote for the physician philosopher, that was actually the comparison that I made was that, hey, you walk into your, your allergies are super bad. You go to your doctor's like, hey, I got you covered, buddy. But just take this. And so you're like, okay, great. And you take it. And it just really wasn't, it had some side effects you just really didn't like. But you know what? It's what the doctor ordered. And then later on, you're just shocked to hear that your physician was like brought to the pharmaceutical company's headquarters and brought on stage and given a fancy trip to Amelia Island in Florida and a bonus and a ribbon. And they were recognized. And you're like, wait a second. Was, what was that advice? Was that advice that was good for me? And then you do a little bit more research and you find out there's a bunch of independent physicians who are like, this drug for your allergies is vastly overprescribed and there's way better things out there that are cheaper and that are going to help your problem. And so you really start wondering like, oh my gosh, was, has this happened before? And was my physician doing what was best for me or best for them? And whenever there's a product that's being transferred from one hand to the next, it becomes harder. It becomes harder to navigate that question about best interests. 
Yeah. So, and then the, in the CFP disclosure, they talk about, I guess the second part of that requirement is managing those conflicts. Uh, you the first requirement is to disclose all the conflicts. And then the second part is to manage the conflicts. I thought that was interesting in the, at least the Northwestern mutuals document, how they reason that. And that is a good, I think a good read as well, because it just shows you how anybody can reason anything, I think. Yes, I agree. And one um, of the reasons, for example, was I need to earn your referrals. Yeah, which that's I, where is, your interests yeah, align. Such an in, interesting reasoning for that. It's like I'm going to act in your best interest no matter, even though I have all these conflicts of interest, I'm going to always look out for you first because I need to earn your referrals. Yeah, I, you and I would agree that we don't think it's a particularly good reason as a way for managing conflicts. And just speaking from experience, being the the young-ish financial advisor trying to make it work where I had to sell things to earn money, you know, I consider myself to be a pretty honest guy, like most people. But it was really dang hard to sit across from people who were doing what they needed to do and feel that tug of, I got to sell something. I got to recommend that they convert some of their term insurance into whole life insurance. Um, because if yeah, I, and then you I would don't go do down something. the hallway and ask for advice from another experienced colleague and they're, and they're going to give you some explanation about how it is the best. And then you talk to another person and then they reconfirm that. And I mean, you might even do your homework and it's like all the stuff around you kind of reinforces that decision that you're not sure about. And it tends to push you subconsciously towards selling the product essentially. Well, I think that people do become very good at justifying their behavior if they have to. And we see this in a lot of different things. And I don't know if you observed this at your office, but one of the things that really troubled me as I was looking around was that there were not that many seasoned advisors, but there were tons of advisors that were getting recruited. And so there's a lot of advisors coming through the door that wouldn't last for very long. And there were only a few that, that actually made it, quote unquote, made it. And that was concerning to me. And again, I think it goes back to this unfortunate, the unfortunate aspect of an advisor needing to, an advisor who's only paid by commission. And how many people can go that long without having some sort of stable income stream? And I think it, it just becomes challenging for advisors to, to learn how to become good advisors if they don't have the space and stability to do that. Because I think a lot of them are kind of, they're forced to learn how to sell so they can create stability. And I think those the orders should certainly be reversed. You should become a really great financial advisor. And actually, you should remove just the sales part altogether <laughs> would be the ideal. But you got to become a you got to become a good financial advisor before you're giving advice. And I think most people that are entering the world of commission financial advisor, they would like to become a good financial advisor first. And they're initially really discouraged by the fact that they're not really learning how to become a financial advisor, but then they just have to make it work because there they are. So what do you think is the like ideal way to look for a quality advisor? Do you think compensation method is, is top of the list? Is that one of the things? What are your thoughts on compensation and like searching for someone? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is 
reach out to the financial advisor. Be cautious if the financial advisor is the first one to reach out to you. I guess where I stand today after having thought about this a lot, if I were a consumer looking to work with a financial advisor, I think the most important thing I would be looking at is compensation. I would want to know how they're getting paid because I really do believe that compensation model is going to tell you more about the relationship that you're going to have with that advisor than any other thing. And again, the brief recap would be if you're working with the commission advisor, don't be surprised if there's an emphasis on products and transaction, the need to place the product. Hey, you should purchase this because of these reasons. If you're working with a fee-based advisor, again, don't be surprised because fee-based includes commissions. Let's remember that. The title's confusing. Fee-based still includes commissions. So that's still going to be a factor. And yeah. What else would you say is good to look for if outside of facing? Yeah. I do think that someone having the CFP marks is key, as has been mentioned. I think it provides a minimum level of education and experience and a commitment to some ethical standards. But other than that, I really think that the you need to examine what you want as a consumer. What are you looking for in the advisor? Are you a physician? Daniel, I know that you primarily work with physicians. And so it, I think it makes a lot of sense to work with a firm that knows a lot about the people, about people like you. <laughs> They've probably seen your situation a few times which is super helpful. If you go to a financial planning firm that's a generalist generalist firm, you may find that there are certain things that they aren't aware of, especially in light of how many physicians have student loans and the complexities around those. It makes sense to have an advisor that knows a little bit about physicians and their student loan issues. But I guess a little bit further into this kind of tying back compensation again, though, are you a do-it-yourselfer and you're just looking for someone to dot the I's and cross the T's? Because you probably want to find like a project advisor or an hourly advisor. And if you're looking for more ongoing, an ongoing relationship where they're doing financial planning, maybe like a monthly subscription model works, or if there's financial planning investment management, maybe a flat retainer that isn't going to increase or decrease based on the assets, but it's just like this, this flat fee. So it really, you really got to, from a consumer standpoint, look at those things. But I think if you are able to determine how they're paid if you find them some with the minimum level of training experience, which would be the CFP is a good barometer for that. And then also finding a firm that knows your issues because they're working with people like you. Those are things that I think would be really helpful. What if somebody just has, doesn't really know what they want. They're not sure if they are, can handle doing it themselves or even if they want to do it themselves or they're just, they just have no idea. They don't know where to start. It's a good question. It seems like if you go online and you read financial planning blogs, in particular for physicians, it seems like there's this big push like, hey, you should do this on your own. You can do this on your own. I don't think there's anything wrong at all with doing it on your own. Just make sure that it's your hobby, what you what you really want to do, spend a lot of time on. I think there's a lot of people like that. If you find yourself not knowing if that's you or not, I still think it makes sense to to seek out the guidance of a financial advisor I don't know. I don't know how your firm is set up, Daniel, but I suspect that if someone works with you, they're not really under any commitment for like how long they work with you or like there's, I'm sure yeah. there's no fees if they decided to leave. Yeah. yeah they it's can a, bounce anytime. It's not- yeah. So you might find that, Hey, it makes sense. It makes sense to work with someone. I don't know if I want ongoing help forever, but for the time being, it makes sense. And so I think it still makes it, it 
I think in a outsourcing this part of your life can create better clarity and give you more space to focus on things that you care about. If at a future mm-hmm. date, you're like, man, I really want to do this on my own, then do it on your own. No problem. Yeah, I think that there's a kind of a DIY, I don't know if I would call it a movement, but a DIY emphasis. And I think part of that is our industry is to blame because, and I'm when I say that there's, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about like the online world, like the financial blogs and that kind of thing. The financial world, our financial industry has not been very transparent and has very expensive hidden pricing. And so naturally, I think it's, or generally, it's good advice to say, maybe you ought to not work with those kind of people and do it yourself. But in my experience, I think the majority of people could do it themselves, but it's more a matter of, do they want to do it themselves And most physicians, the nice thing about your pay structure is, or your compensation level is you can choose to outsource whatever and still probably be ahead of the game. If you don't enjoy it, you might as well delegate. And that gives you more time to either work or spend time with your family or whatever you like doing. I agree. We don't have unlimited time. And so, you know, we could, I think most, I agree with you. I think most people could figure out how to do this stuff on their own as they could figure out how to change their car's oil or do all of their taxes on their own or do all of their landscaping and everything. And there are things that my family has chosen to do because we like to do them that I could hire out, but I'm not going to because we've just decided that these are things that we will do. But maybe there's a, if you're reading, if you're reading some blogs, you might feel feeling like, a little guilty maybe if you reach out and get help, but I don't think that you should. I think it's, I think it's really reasonable. And I think that, I think a lot of people would benefit from being able to focus on those things that they derive greater satisfaction from instead of things that they really don't like. And some people aren't going to like this part of life and that's okay. There's people out there that can, they can help. Yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I come across people that are, I just want to hand the keys over and I want you to drive completely and I don't even want to do anything. My opinion, I think that's not reasonable for most people either. First of all, because we can't do everything. Like I'm not going to balance your checkbook. I'm not going to pay your bills and that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on that? Like fully outsourcing? I don't know if it's possible to fully outsource. No, I don't. Think I mean, like you were saying, right? And you got to keep a pulse on your. Fine. I mean, you're going to care about your money more than anybody. I think that you could enter a danger zone there too, where you've just given everything to a third party, and you really don't know what's going on. I mean, I think that I, I hopefully there's not that many people that are out there doing. I bet there are, but I just don't think it's reasonable. I think that a good advisor make sure that you understand that they provide you some education for what's going on up to the level that you're comfortable with and that you want. Um, But what a good financial advisor is doing, I think, is providing meaningful service, things that you could do on your own with enough education and time and desire, but they're doing it instead. They're providing a meaningful service in that way and navigating the complexities of it too, to provide you with greater clarity. But yeah, I don't think that clients should just say, hey, you take care of it and you know, we'll meet every year and I don't want to hear about it other than, other than that. A good advisor yeah. should educate them a little bit. Yeah. I think that's the middle ground. The ideal middle ground is kind of a combination of the two in my experience as well. 
So as we wrap up here, what are your thoughts on like the future of our industry? What If you could paint the picture of like the ideal financial advice industry, what would it look like in your opinion? Yeah, I think it would be a really good step forward if our industry did some regulation of the title financial advisor. I'm not necessarily opposed uh, to people working with someone who sells products and earns a commission so long as the consumer clearly understands that's the dynamic of the relationship. The problem that I see is that because we all call ourselves financial advisors, the consumer doesn't really have a good way of navigating who provides what function. And so I'm a financial advisor. I have a flat fee only financial planning practice. My clients, my only compensation comes from a quarterly fee. I'm a financial advisor. In my within my city where I live, there are various financial planning organizations that are product manufacturers that are using financial advisors to sell the product. And so, if we could regulate that title. I think that would be a really great step. I also don't think that we are quite, in fact, we are clearly not at the same level of professional respectability as medicine, law, and accounting, and other professions. And one of the reasons is because we don't have a very robust education structure at the universities. The CFP is great. And there are plenty of programs now that are providing coursework, undergraduate and graduate coursework that prepares you to sit for the certified financial planning exam. That's a level of rigor that comes from a college classroom. But in a lot of ways, the CFP is, I did like some mail order stuff at the American college that I don't think provide me with that same level of discipline that people get in at the university. And so if we want to get to that level, we need to provide more education for our advisors as they're coming in. And I guess I'm not sure if that's entirely interesting to those who are listening, but I think the point would be to make sure that your financial advisor is educated, make sure they know what they're talking about. That's and, the problem uh, right now is you can find that completely right now. There's plenty of guys and gals that are doing it the right way and have their, they have strong educational backgrounds and that sort of thing. The, it just puts it on the consumer completely to sort through the confusing titles and compensation methodologies and all this fee-based fee-only commission. I mean, it's confusing stuff. And so it's all on the consumer. And so I think uh, I could not agree with you more. A little bit of title clarity would go a long way. Like let's call ourselves salespeople versus advisor. That's a good start and sort out that. And then, yeah, that's, that's good stuff, man. Well, I appreciate you joining me. How can people find more information about you? Yeah, probably the best way to learn a little bit more about me and my philosophy and my firm is just to go to www.skyviewplanning.com. I mentioned earlier, I've got a flat fee, flat fee only financial planning practice that serves physicians. Yep. Awesome. Well, great talking with you as always. And we'll, I'm sure, be talking soon. Looking forward to it. As we wrap up, remember, Freed.ai is here to free you from medical documentation. It's HIPAA compliant, takes 30 seconds to learn, and is incredibly affordable. Join the movement to eliminate clinician burnout. Visit Freed, F-R-E-E-D, and improve your lifestyle. 
You can try Freed for free right now by going to freed.ai. Listeners of Financial Residency can use the FR50 coupon code for $50 off the first month. Please know that anything I've said today in this podcast should not be considered advice. It is completely for educational and entertainment purposes only. It would be best to view me as just another guy talking about money on the internet. For advice, please consult your advisors. If you don't happen to have a financial advisor already, I happen to know a firm that's absolutely fantastic. It's actually the firm I started and currently run now, Ren Financial Planning. And we would love to get to know you better and see if we might be able to help. Feel free to reach out anytime to schedule an introductory meeting. You can find more info about us at www.renfinancial.com.